Hello and welcome to the Herb Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. My guest today is Jim Crane, an energy research fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute in Houston, Texas. Jim, who worked for many years as a journalist based in Iraq and Dubai, is the author of several books, among them Energy Kingdoms, Oil and Political Survival in the Persian Gulf, published by Columbia University Press, and he's contributed a chapter to When Can Oil Economies Be Deemed Sustainable, published by Paul Grave. Today we're going to talk about the big Gulf oil companies and climate change. Jim, welcome back to the podcast. Oh, thanks, Bill. Great to be here. Now, about six months ago when we when we last spoke, you made the point about this really dire future that the Middle East is potentially facing as a result of climate change. Well, right now, today, we're seeing temperatures in southern Iraq of 50 degrees centigrade, electricity blackouts, water unfit for human use. And the Iraqis, of course, not the only ones in that crisis. So I want to ask you, what are the big Gulf oil companies doing about what many people are calling a looming MENA climate catastrophe? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a tough situation, right? I mean, you know, we could see, you know, if temperatures keep rising, if we keep getting these, these extreme heat waves that uh, get incrementally worse uh, as time passes, you know, we could see parts of that region becoming potentially uninhabitable, right? You have, especially the cities in the Gulf uh, that are close to the coast or on the coast where humidity is so high, uh, you know, the combination of really high heat and humidity is potentially lethal, right? If it, especially if it keeps going uh, in the way it's going. I mean, the, the heat and humidity combinations are really, you know, for folks that don't live in that area or haven't spent much time in that area, it's kind of almost unimaginable. It is so uncomfortable. Um, and it's just, you know, without air conditioning uh, and without power, uh, it just gets really, really, really hard. I mean, I think you know, governments are going to have a tough time coping with this, uh, especially those that are uh, less well endowed, right? The, the, you know, the, the, the rich countries can cope with it by having, you know, just you know, really robust power grids and also cooling centers in the case of emergencies. But, you know, poorer countries like Iraq, where this is also happening in, in, in Iran, um, you know, are, are going to have a little tougher time uh, with this. I mean, Electricity blackouts is not a new thing in Iraq, and, and, and issues with the you know with, with water there are also not new. I mean, it's um, uh, if anything, the, you know, the power situation in Iraq has improved, but um, it's still this is a, a, you know another challenge that, that that Iraq and the other countries are facing, and it, it it kind of bleeds into all sorts of things. I mean, if you think about the Hajj pilgrimage, uh, you know that when that takes place in summer months in the future, you know you've got folks coming in from all around the world, lots of people who are not used to these temperatures, uh, staying outdoors for, you know, five hours at a stretch in the middle of the day, uh, you know, older people, sometimes with fragile health. Uh, you know, this could be a, a you know, you could have a, a catastrophe, uh, you know, in, in during a, a Hodge if it coincided with one of these heat waves. So there's lots to, uh, lots to think about for policymakers uh, in the region dealing with climate. You know, you, you asked me what Gulf oil companies are doing, but it's really the governments, you know, that that, um, that need to to take uh, policy action. It's not sort of the oil companies on their on their own, and it's it's a really tough issue because the interests of the ruling elites in these countries run contrary 
to the interests of the citizens, right? You know, the, the ruling elites in these countries are all dependent on oil rents for the survival of their regimes, you know? So they need the oil business to stay alive uh, for them just to stay in power. Basically, their, you know, their, their systems are based on continued oil rents and oil exports. And the citizens, of course, benefit from this and have for a long time, but ultimately their long-term interests are with a livable climate, right? And, and, and so there's a, there's a conflict there. You know, the NOCs, the national oil companies in these countries are, you know, and, or their governments, really, the, over, you know, the, the overseers, and, uh, they're not doing anywhere near enough to, to cope with this. Um, you know, and you can understand a bit of, their, a bit of that, it's, you know, their reluctance, because this is their bread and butter of their economies. Now, we're starting to see some talk about this uh, about climate uh, and some policy changes, particularly in the UAE, I think, uh, you know, the United Arab Emirates, we're seeing some uh, investment in, in renewables. We've already got a pretty diversified economy. We're, we're starting to see changes in oil export policy that are kind of like um, being, they, they seem like they're being driven by expectations for uh, a winding down of the oil business, right? So, but even in the UAE, where only you know two to three percent of power uh, there is being generated by renewables, right? And some some nuclear uh, power coming on on online uh, very soon. You know the other big oil producers around the Middle East, it's it's less than one percent. None of them has more than one percent of their electricity generated by renewables. Consumption is huge. It's subsidized, uh, and their carbon emissions are leading the world on a per capita basis. You know, you make that point, Jim, and, and I agree that governments need to step up in the region. But, you know, the governments are so tightly, so close to the oil companies. I mean, I'm thinking about Saudi Aramco, for example, is pretty much run by Mohammed bin Salman, Adnok uh, in Abu Dhabi. I mean, these companies do not have a Chinese wall between themselves and the government. So you think, well, come on, get on with it then. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's a... It, it is, uh, it's true. I mean, you know, the, the, I think their, their climate policies are evolving. It's, yeah, I, I agree. It's not nearly enough, not close, not anywhere close. But they're, you know, I mean, they're, they're sort of getting, getting nudged in that direction by what's taking place in, you know, mainly in the OECD countries, right? I mean, we've got, you know, all the OECD countries pretty much now that, you know, Trump's out of power uh, in the U.S. talking about uh, you know, some kind of, uh, you know, a, a carbon neutrality uh, deadline. You know, some are talking about, uh, you know, there's proposals being floated for carbon taxes or carbon fee and dividends and, um, uh, you know, uh, border adjustment tariffs uh, for countries that don't tax carbon. You know, so this formation of these these climate clubs that, that will, you know, where, where if you've got a, a, a carbon tax, it's uh, sufficiently big, you can trade, you can have engage in free trade. And if you don't, if you're free riding, uh, then your, any of your exports will have to pay a, a, a duty to get inside that, that, that free trade carbon taxing block. So we're seeing that some, some of the potential beginnings of something like that with the EU imposing a carbon border adjustment tariff and, and potentially the U.S., getting on board with that. Now in the Gulf, in the GCC countries, in Iran and Iraq, these guys, I mean, not only are they nowhere near, you know, charging a tax on carbon, I mean, they're not even charging the full price 
for energy, for fossil fuel uh, generated power or for, you know, transportation fuels. I mean, these guys are still subsidizing the, the, these fuels. I mean, so, um, I mean, they're so far on the, you know, on the other side of this. I mean, they need at least, at least stop subsidizing of fossil fuels uh, domestically and char at least charge, charge people a full price. Uh, and then let's see what happens to your uh, domestic emissions with that. And then, you know, then after they do that, we can talk about a, uh, a carbon tax. Um, same thing with renewables, right? I mean, you know, we've seen a lot of talk, uh, especially in the UAE, especially in Abu Dhabi, uh, and more recently Dubai, a lot of talk on renewables. Uh, little action until recently. Now we're seeing some some pretty big solar installations, but you know, in proportion to the solar resource in that region and the amount of vacant land, I mean, you've got absolutely ideal conditions. Um, the, the the pricing system on existing energy, the subsidies on fuels and on electricity, are really undercutting the economics for renewables. So they're still way behind where they would be. You know, if these governments and their utilities were to charge cost-reflective tariffs for electricity, then you'd see renewables paying for themselves just in terms of the fuel savings in existing fossil fuel plants that they don't have to, to, to run, uh, you, know, you know, presumably during, during daylight hours when the sun's shining, right? You know, they could stop burning their exportable oil and gas at home uh, and export that uh, at a profit and, and you know, reduce their carbon footprints at the same time. So some changes in the subsidy and pricing regime on energy domestically would have a big impact. A bit of, uh, yeah, a bit of a short-term pain, I guess, for the, the long-term gain, as the cliche goes, because, you know, individuals will be paying more with the subsidy cuts, business will be paying more with the subsidy cuts. But, but as you say, that's a step that probably is required. Uh, we, we talked a little bit about Saudi Arabia and Saudi Aramco. Mohammed bin Salman, I mean, he effectively runs the company, as I said. He's got these huge mega projects, Neom, the Red Sea Tourism, Luxury Tourism Project, uh, Green Riyadh. And all of this is presented as climate friendly, uh, you know, with Aramco kind of leading the way, the charge. I mean, you know, it strikes me there's a contradiction here, Jim. Yeah, it is. A, you know, it's a, but but it, I guess if you if you look at the history of Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia, I mean, you have Aramco has always been called upon for these big projects. I mean, yes, at its core, Aramco is an oil company, but it just you know from the very beginning, you know, all the way back in the 1930s, it's it's gotten tasked to do things way outside its purview. You know, whether that was like eradicating disease or drilling for water. You know, they built the the passenger rail network in Saudi Arabia, you know, they're recently building universities. Uh, so it, Aramco, you know, for better or worse, probably for better, really, uh, it's always been a development tool used by the state and the ruling family, as well as an oil producer, right? And it's there, there's always been this kind of tension there. You know, when the company went public and sold off some of its shares, um, you know, there was a lot of thinking that it was going to stop doing this kind of stuff, that, that, that the, the sort of development arm of Aramco was going to get calved off and uh, operate as a separate company. But, but that hasn't happened. Uh, and it's still, um, you know, they're still doing this kind of stuff. For me, the, the question I want to ask is, you know, can Aramco be a more diversified energy company like Shell or BP? 
right? If you ignore this development stuff that it's already that, that it's kind of always been doing, um, you know, can it can it evolve into a, uh, a a company that's less climate damaging, right? Aramco, you know, the oil and gas produced by Aramco, Aramco is the world's number one emitter by company in terms of the you know scope one, two, and three emissions. If you if you include the emissions of its customers that burn its oil and gas, it's the the company with the largest emissions footprint on earth, right? So, you know, can it be a more diversified company like Shell or BP? Yeah, it can, um, but it needs the, you know, M- MBS needs the government to, to will it to happen. I mean, Aramco's got fantastic engineering talent, really sharp minds. It's, fan- it's you know, it's amazing project execution skills. It's got, of course, plenty of capital to invest uh, in alternate sectors. You know, if the government decides to, to, to follow the model of Shell and BP, if those models start to look attractive in coming years, uh, yeah, um, I think uh, I think so. And these big projects, you know, I, I think eventually they'll probably go to somebody else. Uh, you know, Ramco may not have to get and do that stuff, uh, uh, but I think the ones that you mentioned are more about diversifying the economy really than than, than fixing the climate. So they're they're, they're sort of you know looking at one of the other big problems that that uh that saudi arabia and these other these other entities have to have to face yeah but i wonder too you know these these, these huge mega projects environmentally they're presented as environmentally friendly but uh you look at what they're doing just in the building of them and you think uh, hmm, how environmentally friendly are they but look uh shell you mentioned shell a, a recent case in holland went against the company with the court ordering it to cut emissions by 45% by 2030. Um, could that sort of a case and, and shareholder actions have implications and repercussions for these big Gulf energy companies? I don't see it having direct implications. Um, you know, at least they haven't occurred to me if there are any. But you know, in one sense, you've got you know, IOCs like Shell moving away from oil. You know, if, and as that happens, they'll they'll be ceding market share to, to the big NOCs in the Gulf, right? So, you know, Saudi Aramco and Adnoc and, you know, uh, Kuwait Petroleum, et cetera, they're, gonna, they're probably going to benefit from this in, in part. And, you know, the rest of us who, who, you know, watch oil and oil policy will probably see a little less transparency in the business uh, uh, and maybe even higher carbon intensity, right, depending on who picks up that, that market share. But I suppose indirectly, there are some implications from this. I mean, you just you're seeing a big increase in public pressure, government pressure, and legal pressure on companies uh, and on fossil fuels and on emissions, right? So I mean, I don't think that you know Aramco and the Saudi government can keep its finger in the dike forever on this. You know, these countries in the Middle East are major producers, major exporters also major domestic subsidizers and major emitters, right? And their emissions are really disproportionately large to their population, right? So if you, if you lump the six GCC countries together, their emissions are about the same as Japan's, right? You know, Japan is a much, much larger country, far larger economy, you know, big industrial economy with a you know, huge population, and it's just much more efficiently run, right? Part of that is climate, but, uh, you know, it, it, you know t- it just takes more energy to, to live in the Gulf. But, um, but a lot of that is efficiency in Japan and, and really, you know, subsidies and waste in the, in the Gulf. 
Um, I think when the world gets a better understanding of this and how big the role uh, of these Gulf monarchies in climate change is, pressure is only going to increase. Uh, and that is probably going to help. It's, it's always been true that these autocratic rulers in the Gulf, really, you know, when you've got a country that's a one-man show with a single person at the top, uh, you know, th- that ruler has no way to deflect blame when he makes unpopular decisions, unless he's got a, you know, um, you know some kind of external force that's, that's forcing his hand, then he can, he can point to that and say, uh, use that pressure, that outside pressure to deflect blame for these reforms, right? So... We've seen that happen time and again. So if there's enough pressure, external pressure on these regimes, I think they'll um, uh, they'll start to move a little more quickly. And that pressure you're suggesting would come indirectly, but not directly through any court cases. Probably. I mean, I don't know. I mean, we might see some court cases. I'm sure there. You know, there's probably already been some some cases filed here in the U.S. I mean, Aramco's got a pretty big footprint in the U.S., including the the largest. Refinery. They wholly own a, uh, a refinery here in Texas. Uh, that's the largest one in the U.S. It processes six hundred thousand barrels a day. So they do have some exposure uh, that could, you know, potentially bring them into court. Probably, you know, may already have. I, I'm not aware of uh, many lost climate-based lawsuits uh, against them, but but I'm sure there 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 will be if there there aren't already. But who knows? You know what what path those take. But more broadly, I mean. It, you know, I think the overall pressure from international organizations, from governments and, um, you know, multilaterals, et cetera, may have more effect because it really has to, you know, it has to get to the, to the, to the folks at the top and, and push them to make some, some changes in strategy. Well, let me ask you this, because aside from the potential of legal action, time is the enemy. I was at a webinar earlier this week, a presentation by the LSE's Dr. Michael Mason, who's a geographer who's looking at the social implications of climate change as well. And on that subject in MENA, he said, we only have a decade to turn things around if we want to keep the temperature rise by the end of the century to at least no more than two degrees. Uh, beyond that, it's we're looking at, at, at a catastrophes. Now, these big companies, as you said, they, they play a, a huge role. Um, they could play a, a major frontline role. Do they have the time? Do they have the political will? You know, is the opportunity there for them within this decade to make this big statement? You know, I mean, again, I, I don't think they can do it without a government signal, at least at a minimum, right? I mean, really what they need is a mandate, um, from the government. They need legislation, you know, if they're in a more democratic country or they're, you know, in the, the ones we're talking about, the NOCs in the Gulf and the Middle East, uh, they need some kind of decree. So it can be done, uh, I think, but, you know, if, if physically, but it's almost like a, you know, a, you know, a, 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 such a huge change in, in footing. It's like a, you know, a shift from a peacetime to a war economy. So I'm pessimistic, really, that, um, that we're going to see that. Is, is it bad for regime security? Then, you know, unfortunately, they're not going to, you know, it's going to be tough to get them to, to, to get them to adopt a policy that's, that they view as negative uh, for their, their uh, tenure in office. Shifting uh, focus slightly, Jim, uh, I want to ask you, because it has happened this week and it's a continuing story about the most recent OPEC plus bust up with the Emiratis going up against the Saudis and the Russians and 
saying that to extending the production cut deal. What do you make of the Emirati position, and, and what do you think? How do you think it's going to play out? Well, I mean, you know, I mean, the UAE's got a pretty strong case here for um, for for what they're they're arguing. I mean, you know, I can I can sympathize. Um, you know, I mean, as long as you set you know climate change aside here for a minute, um, you know, their their uh, production baseline is still you know from twenty eighteen. You know, twenty twenty one. This is you know. They've they've invested a lot of money in in oil, you know, bringing more oil uh, production on stream, and so their 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 production baseline in this uh, in the agreement is too low, you know, relative to what they can produce. So they're sacrificing almost a million barrels a day of production capacity, more than anybody else, you know, other than com- countries that are undergoing extreme duress like you know Venezuela and Iran, etc. So. You know, at the same time, this is, you know, we're seeing the UAE's, its arguments here are based on a change in strategy and basically a stepping up of their depletion timeline. It used to be that, you know, the UAE and Saudi Arabia and Kuwait, et cetera, really wanted to slow walk oil to market. They didn't want to bring new fields on too quickly. They wanted these fields to stay in production for 30 years uh, minimum. You know, they, they, they didn't want to supply too much uh, demand, you know, it's be- because um, that would drive prices down. It would prevent high-cost oil producers like those in the U.S., et cetera, from bringing oil to market and, you know, keeping prices higher. So they uh, now seem to want to shift their strategy. They want to monetize that oil, that underground resource now before it loses value. You know, you see an oil analysts talking about this could be the last big oil boom. Uh, and after that, we might see oil being cheap for longer or even forever. Uh, who knows, right? So with that risk, I think you know, UAE policymakers want to use the proceeds from their oil to keep their diversification push going and even intensify it, right? And, so, and, and, and the UAE, you know, in Abu Dhabi and Dubai especially, they've got the luxury of doing this because they're already pretty diversified, they made some pretty wise choices, some of them you know, many decades ago, that prepared uh, the country for being able to wean itself off of, off of oil uh, and not suffer the same kind of fiscal damage that some of the neighbors would. And the other countries are just not in that, that position. You know, the Saudis are still getting you know, a huge share of their government budget from oil. They haven't developed alternate sources of fiscal revenues yet. Um, they're doing it. They're working quickly, and they're get they're getting there. But um, the UAE is just much much further ahead, so they have the luxury of of, of really changing gears, taking this market share approach. Uh, and I think their shift to this market share versus price approach is shaping up to be kind of a strategic divergence uh, within the GCC and within OPEC. Uh, so I think that's kind of the the big picture here. You know, and the Smaller, the more you know, kind of current picture is that I, I would argue that the UAE and Saudi Arabia, this, this is going to bust up, is more of a normal state of affairs that we had pre-2015 when King Salman came to power uh, in Saudi Arabia. You know, under, under Abdullah, the previous Saudi kings, the UAE and the Saudis were really just not that close. Uh, you know, they had abrasive relations. I don't you know if you remember 2006, I think it was, 2007. You know, Saudis even shut the border 
with the UAE. There was a dispute over a, uh, an official government map that came out that, that claimed some, um, some disputed territory uh, in, in the eastern province. Uh, that you know that Saudi Arabia controls, and you know UAE was making a claim for it. You know that I think we're we're seeing more of a return to you know what we what we used to have in terms of relations with uh, with with the set between the Saudis and the UAE. So you don't think the Emiratis will be cross enough to pull out of OPEC? No, I don't think that. I, I doubt that the UAE will pull out of OPEC. You know, the UAE and, and, and the Saudis have been in OPEC. Uh, well, you know, Saudi Arabia's a founding member. The UAE is, or Abu Dhabi joined, gosh, in the late 60s or early 70s, potentially even before the UAE was uh, a, a country uh, that we know now. Uh, I think it was Abu Dhabi that joined. And so, um, you know, they've been in the, this organization for a long time. Both of them get a lot of uh, strategic and geopolitical power from it uh, and, you know, increases their stature uh, on the world stage. I think the UAE's got legitimate beefs in that, you know, it doesn't wield the same power within OPEC than it used to under this new OPEC plus configuration where it's really the Saudis and the Russians making all the decisions. Uh, You know, we saw the Qataris pulling out partly for that reason, but the UAE's much larger producer. So I, I, you know, I think they, the cartel has survived and proven itself a useful organization for so long. I think it's you know remarkably durable, remarkably capable. I mean, you've got almost two dozen countries that generally agree to take measures that are against their own personal, their own individual best interests for the collective good. I mean, this is a this is an organization that deals with a collective action problem day in day out. Never an easy thing to deal with. You know, this is like, you know, a, a climate change is a collective action problem that, you know, is very difficult to deal with and we're, you know, unsuccessful in dealing with it. But this is what OPEC does. Uh, and it's, um, I think it does it really well. And, and I think there's a lot of value in what they do. So I don't think the um, UAE is ready to, to dump that. Uh, and I could be wrong. Um, there could be, a, you know, um, a, you know, major shift in thinking that, that I haven't heard about yet in, inside the UAE. But, but I kind of doubt it. I mean, Iraq and Iran famously stayed in OPEC even when they were at war in the '80s. Um, you know, if it can survive that, it can probably survive this. So uh, tensions uh, within OPEC, uh, as you suggest, uh, probably the Saudis and the Emiratis can work their way through that one. But you've got. Uh, these big Gulf energy companies eyeing the bottom line, trying to balance that with environmental concerns. You've got that connection with the governments, with the ruling families, trying to maintain their hold on power and get those oil revenues coming in. Meanwhile, the the, um, climate clock is ticking down. So Jim, I want to ask you as we conclude this conversation, if you were the CEO of, I don't know, Saudi Aramco or Adnoc or the Kuwait National Petroleum Company, what would you be doing right now? Well, I mean, again, you know, you have to, you know, you have to recognize that they're, they, they, they basically accept, uh, they carry out national policy. But so it would have to have some big change in strategy for them would have to come from, the, from above them. But, um, uh, and they always tell you that, right? Whenever you talk to executives in these companies, they're like, well, I, you know, we don't really make these decisions. It's the ministry that we get it from and the ministry gets it from the ruler, right? So. 
But these companies and NOCs in general all need to find ways to start competing on carbon. I think this is going to be the next frontier for them. We're seeing some of the IOCs start to get into this area. Saudi Aramco is already very competitive on carbon. It's leading the way. It's got the lowest carbon oil, uh, carbon intensity oil production. And overall, you know, if you burn Saudi oil, you are emitting carbon, but you're emitting less than that of any other producer because Saudi oil just comes out of the ground so easily and doesn't require lots of energy to produce or to, 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 to process. So they need to get beyond just their natural advantage and start competing on carbon uh, with others, using it as a marketing uh, tool, and then using it as a tool to get around carbon taxes and carbon border tariffs, right? So they need to reduce their carbon emissions, but they need to get beyond that and, you know, find further non-combustion uses for crude oil, right? So petrochemicals is, is of course, a big one, but there might be some others uh, for oil and gas. Gas is easy to turn into hydrogen, so hydrogen is going to be a big one of those. And then they they need to start offsetting their emissions, so reducing their scope one, scope two, offsetting the rest of those scope one and scope two, and then start to target the scope three emissions, the emissions of their customers. You know, these companies like the citizens in their countries, they need climate action to succeed. Uh, you know, the, you know they, they can't see their, their countries you know, becoming uninhabitable around them. Uh, and so they need to help the governments, their governments, diversify their source of revenues so they're not so singly dependent on, on oil rents. Uh, and fiscal diversification is, is super important, including taxation, right? Not taking away subsidies and, and, and imposing taxes uh, is a politically very risky step in these countries. It's, it's, it's contrary to the social contract, but it would really take the pressure off of oil and allow these companies to get more creative. You know, we could see more asset sales like we're seeing now, more alternative investments, uh, and as long as the governments have sufficient funding, you know, they can take these steps, they can take more risks uh, and try to uh, find ways of moving beyond oil, decarbonizing the oil and finding non-combustion uses for it. So lots of steps. You're starting to see this happen a bit. Uh, you know, some, there's some, some thinking on this and some, some positive statements on it. But uh, really, it's, uh, you know, it's a long and, and, and arduous process. Yes, and as you say, the um, the order has to come from the top down. We'll just have to wait and see on that. But in the meantime, the climate change issues are with us and are becoming increasingly serious and severe. Uh, Jim, thank you so much. Oh, of course, Bill. Anytime. It's uh, always great to chat. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was the Baker Institute's Jim Crane. He's the author of Energy Kingdoms, Oil and Political Survival in the Persian Gulf, published by Columbia University Press, and also a favorite of mine, Dubai, the story of the world's fastest city. We welcome your comments. If you're not already a member and you want to join the club, you can find out how by going to ArabDigest.org. If you're a student, we have a new rate of £10 a month or £100 per year. And for academics and retirees, we are now offering a rate that amounts to a 70% discount. And subscriptions are now available to university libraries. Check it out on ArabDigest.org. Sign up to the free trial. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, 
editor of the Arab Digest, essential reading from independent sources.